0: So we're working our way through the epistle of James. The theme of the larger context in this part of James is what authentic faith looks like. And it's his point is, over and over again, that it's not just that someone claims to have faith, but... Faith has a transforming effect upon a person's life. Last week we talked about the tongue. How the tongue can be used to curse people made in the image of God and yet also used to bless God and worship God. But this isn't the way it should be. We ought to be using our tongues as a reflection of hearts that are filled with wisdom and understanding. And so he turns in the second half of chapter 3 to the subject of wisdom. So we'll begin in James 3.13. Six precious verses of the Word of God. Who is wise and understanding among you? So let us walk through verse by verse and uh, time and sort of contemplate and let each verse sink in a little bit. So he starts out, who is, in verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. And that's the title of the sermon, the meekness of wisdom. He begins by asking them to look around. Who is wise and understanding among you? Who are the people in your church who are really a blessing to the church? Who are the people who really make a church work, who make a church healthy? We can tell that he's talking about the context of the church because he asks, Who among you? Referring to the fellowship of God's people. And so he's talking about how we conduct ourselves in the context of the Christian church. If you think you are one of the wise and understanding ones, he says, or if you want to be, here's what to do. Show your works by your good conduct in the meekness of wisdom. I love this phrase, the meekness of wisdom. Wisdom is not theological knowledge, although that may have a role. Wisdom is not theological knowledge, but that has a role. But an essential ingredient of true wisdom is meekness, is humility. True wisdom is always accompanied by humility. Humility, or meekness, was not esteemed in the Greek world, nor is it esteemed in our world. The world calls us to believe in ourselves, and to stand up for ourselves, and to assert ourselves. They see meekness as weakness, And a poor self image. But a very different picture appears in the New Testament. Jesus calls himself meek. We read it this morning in the responsive reading. Jesus blessed those who are meek in the Beatitudes. And this mentality of Christ comes from understanding ourselves. As sinful creatures before the glorious and majestic God. In and of ourselves, we are completely unable to figure out the meaning of life, to find spiritual fulfillment, to find the right path that we should be walking on. The world wants us to face God with a sneer and grumbling. But according to scripture, the only psychologically healthy way to face God is with fear and trembling, along with gratitude and love. So before God, Christians are to be meek and humble. He's big, we're small. He knows all things, we know very little. He can do anything, we can only do a few things. And only that with his help. True godly wisdom is meek. And that meekness of wisdom manifests itself in good conduct and loving deeds, James says. Verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. You see, the world has its version of wisdom. James can't just talk about wisdom without talking about the world's wisdom because the people who he's writing to, you know, they live in, a, in the world. They hear the word wisdom. They grew up hearing the word wisdom and it, in a very different meaning. So he's got to address the fact that there's two wisdoms. The world has its version, but it's not the version that comes from God. The contrast to godly godly wisdom, which is meek, is the attitude that typifies the world bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. The attitude which is celebrated in the world is a zeal to get ahead, even if it means stepping on other people to do so. It's brimming with self assurance. I know what I want. And I know how to get it. It's interesting. The word, the word that's, the Greek word that's translated selfish ambition here, it's one word, and it's used nowhere else in the New Testament. And that always makes it a challenge to figure out what it means. The only use of this word that we have before the New Testament was written was from Aristotle. And you know what Aristotle was describing when he used this word? The narrow partisanship of greedy politicians in his day. I think we can understand well what he was talking about. Think how contrary that kind of attitude is to the way of Christ. Jesus said, Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the way of wisdom, according to Jesus. The meekness of wisdom. And that's the way he lived. And when he lives in our hearts, that's the way he moves us to live. And if a person is filled with bitter jealousy, and that, that word doesn't, um, that word implies a sort of cold zeal to, to uh, get for yourself and selfish ambition, that person who's like that is not filled with Jesus even if they say they are. And he says if if this is the way you are, don't boast as if you're wise. Don't boast in your wisdom if really what's ruling your heart is selfish ambition. People like this tend to be big on themselves, brimming with confidence that they know what needs to be done. But a truly wise person, you know what he boasts in? Jeremiah 9 tells us, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For in these things I delight declares of the Lord and then moving down to 15 this is not the wisdom that comes down from above the wisdom he's been describing but is earthly unspiritual demonic so again there's a wisdom that comes down from above that comes from God And that's why James 1.5, you know, two chapters earlier, he told us, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God. It comes from God. But true wisdom, therefore, involves meekness. Because it's not something that's in us. It's something that God gives us. These two different ways of viewing things are not just two differing opinions that you could evaluate and decide on which you think is better. One is from God, and the other is not from God, but from man. It's really false wisdom. Man, a wisdom that man arrives at by means of satanic deception. It's the wisdom that the serpent whispered in the ears of our first parents in the Garden of Eden. It's the wisdom which comes forth from the heart of man incited by Satan. And that's why the world thinks it's wise. It thinks that God, godly wisdom, it thinks that godly wisdom is the epitome of foolishness. And if we're going to live as Christians in this world, we're going to have to get used to being thought of Therefore, it's foolish, even to the point of being thought of as harmfully foolish. Verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. So the earthly, unspiritual, and demonic character of this wisdom can be seen in the effects it has in the life of the church. It results in disorder. It results in every vile practice. Now, when it talks about disorder, um, that's the same word that Paul uses that we read earlier you know, a couple years ago in 2 Corinthians 10, I'm sorry 12 where remember that he is uh, pleading with them because he's troubled about the condition of the congregation. He says I fear that perhaps when I come I may find you not as I wish, that perhaps there will be quarreling jealousy, anger hostility slander, gossip conceit and disorder that's the word so he's talking about the turmoil that's introduced into the life of a congregation through this false kind of wisdom this bitter jealousy and selfish ambition and boasting this kind of disorder and every evil practice is bound to to result in churches where people pursue their own selfish agendas instead of pursuing the welfare of the body as a whole moving to 17 but the wisdom from above is first pure and by the way this verse this verse is really remarkable you know there's the number of places in the in the new testament where we're given sort of a snapshot of what a Christian is supposed to look like. We have um, the the, the, uh, fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter uh, 5. We have the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. We have a glorious description of it in Romans chapter 12. And then here in James 3, especially in verse 17, we have this amazing description of... Godliness. So he says, first it's pure. And that means single-minded, wholehearted. Jesus said that no man can serve two masters. But of course, that doesn't stop us from trying. We serve Christ and our own popularity. We want to serve Christ and our own creature comforts. We want to serve Christ and our own financial security. The people that James is referring to here are people who serve Christ, period. Their allegiance is not divided. That's the first characteristic of this wisdom he's talking about. And then he says, peaceable, peace loving. is just what's needed in a church which struggles with, with bitter jealousy and selfish ambition and the disorder which it results in. Of course, there is a time to fight. But for warriors, it's always time to fight. They'll always find something to fight about even if they have to invent it. But God calls us to live in harmony with one another. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Romans 12. And so he says here that this wisdom from above is peaceable. And then he adds, gentle. Gentle. You know, Jesus said that he was gentle. Paul includes it in the sermon, in the fruit of the Spirit. Elders in the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 are called to be gentle. When people are at odds with one another and when there's tension in the air, it only takes a spark to get a fire going. A word spoken with an edge and a subtle accusation. You know because you've been there just like all of us have been there. What is needed is gentleness. Remember that Paul had some pretty severe things to say to the Corinthians as he anticipated his next visit. But what does he say in 2 Corinthians 10.1? I entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. He was very conscious that even though he had hard things to say to them, he had to say them with gentleness with humility, or they weren't going to listen. The next on the list is open to reason. This is a very hard word to translate, but I think actually the ESV has done a pretty good job. This is the only place in the New Testament where this Greek word is used as well. And it means literally, easily persuaded. Persuaded. Now, obviously, there's a kind of being easily persuaded, which is not good at all. But remember that James is talking about the context of quarreling and fighting, which he's, in, which, uh, he's going to talk about in the next verse, James 4.1 and following, which we'll talk about next week. So open to reason, by saying that, he implies someone who's re- who really listens. To his the person he's struggling with, talking to. It implies really being willing to question what you thought or what y- your opinion is by listening to what the other person has to say. Most of the time in the context of quarreling and fighting, it's hard to get anyone on either side to really listen to sit down and hear the other person out. But that's exactly what James is talking about when he says, open to reason. The next description is full of mercy and good fruits. Godly wisdom is full of mercy and good fruits. In most conflicts, people are saying, he's the bad guy, she's the bad guy. I am not perfect. But his mistakes, her mistakes, are much bigger than my mistakes. But mercy says, we're all sinners. We all need forgiveness. We're all blind. To a great extent, I'm no better than you. Let's work on this together. It's full of mercy. Full of good fruits. And again, mercy is the specific, but good fruits is the general. All kinds of good virtues like mercy. Then he lists impartial. Of course, he just spent half of chapter 2 talking about impartiality and the sin of partiality. You know, I spent many years on a committee of our presbytery that dealt with problems that arose in churches. He called it the CMR committee. And we would be called in to deal with churches when problems broke out, conflicts, tensions. And, um, and you know, the whole idea is that we were impartial. We were coming from outside. We didn't have an opinion of who was right or wrong. We didn't even want to be on someone's side, necessarily. There are times where when you came in and did an analysis, you realize yeah, one side is really right and doing this properly and the other side's really wrong. But generally, it wasn't that way at all. It was two sides who were um, fighting over each other and the big issue was their fighting, not the issue itself. It was the pride. It was the selfishness. And so, uh, we and we've ourselves as a congregation been blessed by the, opportunity to bring in the same committee from our presbytery to deal with our situations. And they come in with impartiality. And true wisdom has this has this characteristic of being impartial. Um, let's, let's look at this and find a way to address everyone's fears because a lot of times the conflicts are because this person's afraid of this and this person's afraid of this and both fears are legitimate. But let's work out a way that we can make sure that both fears are listened to and paid attention to. And, uh, and let's, let's find out why everybody's angry and, and, uh, and see if they need, you know, don't you agree that when you said this that way, that that was, uh, that, don't you understand why that hurt them? And yes, okay, well then have you apologized for that? You know, working out the relationships, the impartiality that's required to deal with situations. And then the last characteristic is sincere. You know, no hidden agenda. No manipulation. No need to come across as the winner. The sincere person is stable, trustworthy, transparent. Transparent. He's not worried about what others think of him. He just wants others to see Christ and Christ's love for them. Like true faith produces a life of good works, as he talked about in uh, James 2, the second half of James 2. Here, James tells us that true wisdom also produces a certain quality of life. This is how we live out the life of Christ. This is how we show Christ to each other. And that's one of our most important jobs, is to show Christ to one another. And that's what every one of us needs. We need to see Christ. And part of the way that we see Christ is in each other. And the more we're filled with the spirit of... The meek wisdom that is described here, the more others see Christ in us and the more we are encouraging one another by demonstrating Christ. And then the last verse, verse 18. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so here's the result if you live this way. If you... If you're filled with this kind of wisdom, here's the result. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace. There's the method that is used. It's sown peacefully by those who make peace. So you see the, the motive of the person. He he's desires to make peace. You see the method of the person. He's working peacefully. And you see the result of his ministry. It brings a harvest of righteousness. And here we see what I think is probably James' chief concern in the face of quarrels and conflicts that he has heard about among the, the people. He wants Christians to be peacemakers. He wants peacemaking believers to help bring about a harvest of righteousness and peace in Christ's church, the false wisdom of the world produces disorder and all kinds of other evil things. True godly wisdom produces a harvest of righteousness and peace. Now, over the years, I've made a point many times that if you're a Christian, it's important that you are in the church, that you're a part of the church. But James says it's not enough to be in the church. God calls us through James to be the kind of Christian who serves, who helps, who strives to be a blessing. It was said of Jesus, zeal for your house will consume me. And I think that God wants us to have that same spirit that we have a passion for God's house. We have a zeal for his house. We have a desire to be a blessing and to make it Shine to make it look like Christ is there. So, in summary of it all, there are two things which are called wisdom. The world has an earthly, unspiritual, demonic kind of wisdom, full of selfish ambition, bitter jealousy, and boastfulness, but it leads to disorder and every vile practice. But there's also a wisdom which comes from God, and James is anxious that we understand the difference between the two because when push comes to shove you know as well as i do that you often resort to the older things in your life patterns and we can easily resort to the old patterns of the the world's wisdom to handle a situation So we've got to be alert to the fact that the world has its wisdom, its way of looking at things, its view of the truth, its philosophy about how life ought to be lived, and that this foolish wisdom is not just out there in the world, it's here in my heart. But Christians aren't supposed to conform to this false kind of wisdom. We're supposed to have the mind of Christ... Jesus, of course, lived this out perfectly. He was gentle and lowly. He was pure and sincere. He was full of mercy and good fruits. He was the Prince of Peace. And the more we're filled with Jesus, the more earnestly we seek Him, the more these qualities are going to be displayed in our lives. But never perfectly. Not in this life. We will always fall short. We'll always need forgiveness. We'll always need to look to Christ, not only as our example to follow, but as our Savior, as our substitute who purchased our forgiveness with His precious blood. Now, I just want to add one footnote to this. There are a number of scholars who in their commentaries make the point that though James is clearly talking about all Christians in general in this epistle, he seems also to have Christian leaders in mind in a special way. This is why they suggest that James starts the, his discussion of the subject of t- tongue, the use of the tongue, with a warning that not many should desire to be teachers in the church in James 3.1. I think that the passage we just read could easily be directed toward leaders as well, though not explicitly and not exclusively. Who ought to rise to a position of leadership in the church? The one who has the meekness of wisdom. In the church, there's an attraction toward the kind of leader who's strong And bold, and confident, and knowledgeable, and eloquent, and entertaining, and sharp-witted, and ambitious, and opinionated. And there's nothing inherently wrong with any of those qualities. But I think there is something wrong with when those qualities become the important things to us. It's possible for someone to have those qualities, you see, but have very little meekness, humility, tenderness, kindness, compassion, gentleness, mercy, peacefulness. We want our leaders to be big speakers, but isn't it just as important that they be big listeners? This is why it's dangerous to elevate a pastor purely on the basis of his preaching. Strong preaching is not enough. He needs the meekness of wisdom, he needs pure devotion to Christ. He needs to be peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, impartial, and sincere. He needs to be filled with Christ not filled with himself. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we give praise to you for the beautiful picture that you have painted in this passage for us. Picture of Jesus. And dear Lord, we want to be like him. Give us, as we sang this morning, give us a heart like yours. For Lord, we know that that these qualities are foreign to our flesh and that our flesh resists them but dear Lord we know that the power of your spirit is even greater than the power of our flesh and we pray that you would work in us in such a way that your love O Lord drowns out the fleshly ambitions that all of us struggle with. We long, O Lord, to be instruments of love in your hands that however you call us to serve this body or whatever body we're in, we would do so with sincerity and with the power of the Holy Spirit. And dear Heavenly Father, we do uh, thank you for the process that we as a church are going through looking for a new pastor. And we do pray, dear Lord, that you would help us to find a man like this and to be, to be discerning. We pray for the committee, that you would give them discernment and wisdom and humility as they work together. And dear Lord, we want you to be honored here. And you to be glorified. As we sang this morning, Lord, we want you to, be, to receive all the credit and the glory and not to us. We pray all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.